If you've ever been to the eye doctor and you're having your eyes examined and they're going to evaluate your eyes for your need for glasses and then decide and determine a prescription for you to see with, you're going to go through an experience where you have these big fancy binocular type things put in front of your face and you're going to hear something like this. Does it look better through one or two? Two or three? You been there? And you go through all of that in order to get to the lens through which you can see clearest. When we read this passage this morning, we are going to be hearing a number of lenses. And our goal is to get to the lenses, the lens that we can see the message of Christ most clearly. So we may feel like we're getting, can you see clearly through one or two, two or three? And it's going to be a little challenging because this is described by those who have invested a great deal of their lives in the study of Revelation scholars and commentators. This passage we're going to read this morning is described as perhaps the most challenging passage in all of Revelation. And it's really due to the fact that there are a lot of questions that are raised in this passage that simply do not have clear answers. The passage itself is bizarre. And the stuff of movies, it's craziness. And so we're going to read through it and we're going to work very hard to get to the things that are most clear about Jesus Christ, His purposes and promises. Because I'm convinced that God wants us to leave this morning with an unbelievable degree of encouragement. And when we see what He intends us to see, I believe we will be so encouraged together. And so thankful that we were afforded the opportunity to gather together and listen to the Word of God. So let's read this passage together and see what we can see. Revelation chapter 11. We're going to read the first 14 verses. And a measuring rod like a staff was given to me. And someone said... Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. But disregard the courtyard outside the temple and do not measure it because it's been given to the nations and they will trample the great city, the holy city, for 42 months. And I will give authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, having been clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands which are standing before the Lord of the earth. And if anybody wants to harm them, fire will come out from their mouths and consume their enemies. 
If anybody wants to harm them, they must die in this way. These have authority to shut up the heavens so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They have authority over the water to turn it into blood and to strike the land with all plagues as often as they want. And when their testimony is accomplished, the beast will come up from the abyss and will make war with them and will conquer them and will kill them. And their corpses will be in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. And those from the people, tribes and tongues and nations will see their corpses for three and a half days. And their corpses they will not allow to be placed in tombs. And those dwelling upon the earth will rejoice over them. And they're celebrating. And they will send gifts to each other because those two prophets tormented those who dwell upon the earth. And after three and a half days, the spirit of life from God will enter into them and they will stand upon their feet and great fear will fall upon those who see them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud. And their enemies watched them. And in that hour there came a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. And in the earthquake, the names of those who died were 7,000. And those remaining were greatly afraid, and they gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. The second woe has come. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. John is given a measuring rod. And he has in his vision a temple and an altar and a courtyard. There's no temple in Jerusalem when Revelation is revealed. There's no indication what temple this is referring to. It could be the heavenly temple. But the fact is, John sees a temple. He's told to measure that temple and those who worship in it, but he's told not to measure the courtyard where the nations are trampling the city for 42 months, three and a half years. The city is referenced in the vision as having the spiritual identification Sodom and Egypt. It further identifies a place where Jesus Christ was crucified. So we know we're talking about Jerusalem here and the condition in Jerusalem at this point in the last days. Remember, this is right before 
the delay of God's judgment ceases and all of God's judgments falls and everything is completed in judgment. This is right before the end of the delay, the sounding of the seventh trumpet. So the time frame that this is occurring is right up against the end when the delay is over. And John is seeing a vision of the temple and people who worship God. And, and God's telling John, don't measure the courtyard in the city where people are going to trample Jerusalem. And it is far gone, so far gone. The only description that could adequately describe what's happening in the great holy city is Sodom and Egypt. Complete rebellion against God. You can find in several other areas of Scripture where this concept of measuring is used to describe either how God will throw out judgment or how He will provide protection and hold back judgment. And certainly this is consistent with other places in Revelation where we see God protecting His people. And those who do not trust in Christ are not under the protection of being under the blood of Christ. And so here again, we see this picture of John being told, you are to measure the people who worship me. You are to show that they are protected by me. But those who do not worship, who worship everything and anything but me, do not measure them. This has nothing to do with the size of the temple, the number of the people. It has everything to do with what God is doing to protect his people and what the people who are refusing to respond to God are doing to themselves by walking outside the protection of God. So this first picture is a picture of protection, and then we see the two witnesses. We can understand a little bit more about God's protection as we watch these two witnesses and what they do when they come on the scene. They're given terms, two olive trees, two lampstands. The closest indication of anything like this in Scripture is found in Zechariah chapter 4 where there are two olive trees described on either side of a lampstand, and Towards the end of that chapter, those two olive trees are given identification by saying these are the two anointed persons beside the Lord or with the Lord. And so we, we don't know anything more about these two witnesses in Revelation in terms of what Zechariah tells us other than the fact that we obviously are dealing with two people that have been set aside for a very special purpose. Who they are, we don't know. We'd certainly like to know sometimes. We like to know these kinds of things. And so there's lots of opinions floating around about who these individuals are. Maybe they're the two people in Zechariah 4, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Maybe, maybe they're Moses and Elijah. Maybe they're Elijah and Enoch. You know, Elijah and Enoch never died. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more. Elijah was taken up in a chariot. Maybe the two of them come back, and now they're actually going to die. If we were supposed to know who these two people, we would be reading it in the Bible. We just don't know their identity, and certainly there's nothing wrong with trying to speculate and come to a conclusion. But even if we were to come to a definitive conclusion about their identities, it would make what's clear no more clear and so we just got to stick with what's clear and the fact is we're not giving the identities these are these are no name individuals maybe even individuals who come to faith in Christ during these final days of judgment 
And God raises up with an unprecedented call in an unprecedented time. And they are equipped with the power of God to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that would require them to be in sackcloth. You see, it's a gospel that is sweet as honey. It's a gospel of salvation that Jesus Christ has come to save. But it was a gospel that required sackcloth because the moment of delay was about to end. And final judgment would fall. These two witnesses come on the scene proclaiming the news of Jesus Christ and His coming judgment. The delay would end. They're bearing the message. They're prophesying to the great city of Jerusalem. People are hearing what they're saying and they're not liking it one bit. They stand against them. They don't like them. They are their enemies. And they are trying to attack the two witnesses and kill them. And, to dis- and they discover that the two witnesses are actually unbreakable. It's remarkable what's described here. When people try to attack the witnesses and kill them, The people who try to kill them are the ones who are killed. It would be like someone pulling out a gun to shoot one of the witnesses, pulling the trigger, and the bullet they shoot out, not hitting the witness, but hitting themselves, even though it's pointed at the witness. It'd be like an attacker taking a knife and coming after one of the witnesses and trying to stab one of the witnesses, and instead of the knife going into the witness, the knife goes into the attacker. And the description of how this happened is violent. Like fire coming out of their mouths and incinerating their enemies. They are unbreakable. Nothing can stop their proclamation. They get to proclaim the word of God in the midst of the greatest opposition to God the world has ever seen. And they cannot be touched. It is remarkable what they can do. They're able to perform all these signs and call on plagues to call, come upon the land. And it's, it's crazy. They can throw plagues onto the people as often and as much in whatever kind they want. I mean, this is like watching a sci-fi movie. I don't know if you watch, ever watched or heard of the X-Men. This is like the X-Men. It's crazy stuff. And there they are, unbreakable. Proclaiming the word of God, and then this beast comes out of the abyss. We'll see a be- two beasts later in Revelation. It's like this is our foreshadowing of what's to come. This beast comes out of the abyss. Remember we saw the abyss and the demonic horde that came out of the abyss in the form of what was described as the locust. So we have something very evil coming out of the, the abyss termed the beast. And the beast goes to war with the witnesses. And the witnesses for three and a half years are unbreakable, can't be touched. When the beast gets on the scene, all of a sudden this war breaks out and all of the abilities that the witnesses had to exhibit protection of God are not enough to combat the beast. And the beast kills the witnesses. And the, and the people around see these witnesses that had tormented them with all the plagues and the message of the gospel that they refused to accept. They see these two witnesses dead in the streets and they say, we're not burying these guys. We're going to disgrace them and throw a party over them. I don't know if you've ever been to Mardi Gras in uh, the French Quarter in New Orleans, but I'm suspecting that this is a lot like what it was. They're just going crazy having a party. 
It's like Christmas Day. It's like everybody's birthday. They're exchanging gifts. It is a huge party day after day celebrating that these two people were dead. And the mistake that the people made was to assume that the death of the two witnesses was the final word. Because three and a half days later, the breath of God comes into them. They rise from the dead. Now, you, can you imagine having the biggest party ever over the death of two individuals that you leave laying on the ground and you party around celebrating the finality of their death and in the middle of your party, they wake up, stand up, and they're alive and a great voice from heaven calls out, come up here and they ascend on a cloud right into heaven and a great earthquake shakes the city, destroying a tenth of it and 7,000 people die. Now notice the way I read the text probably different than the way your text reads. I said the names of those killed were 7,000. That's the literal reading of the text. And the reason why I wanted you to hear that is because there's emphasis in the emotion of this moment for the people in Jerusalem. The people have watched what they thought was the final word of victory over those who tormented them, only to discover they didn't have the final word. This earthquake comes and 7,000 people that for the people that were there, they had names. They were friends. They were family. They'd made it together through these series of judgments on the world. They had survived. They were the remaining people. They had been brought together by the fact that they had lived. Everybody that was there had names. They knew each other. These are real people. And the, 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 the Bible wants us to feel the emotion of this moment. These people that died in that moment, in that destruction, they had names. They were somebody's mom and dad and daughter and sister and brother. And they, were, they were real people. And this is devastating emotionally. And then the most unexpected thing happens. You remember back to Revelation chapter 2, the lady named Jezebel. You, you remember Jesus talking about Jezebel? He says about Jezebel, he says Jezebel, and he describes her, and she is not good. She's dragging people off from worshiping the Lord into idolatry and immorality. She is robbing people out of the church and getting them to turn away against God. She is terrible in what she's doing in drawing people into idolatry. So this Jezebel, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. That is amazing. Someone so bad doing such awful things that Jesus' perspective on her is, she's worth me waiting for. And I'm working right now so that she might turn back to me. And I have given her time. And then Jesus says, but she did not want to repent. And that's like a foreshadowing of what's unfolding in the remainder of Revelation. You remember during the breaking of the seals, there were people who ran into caves 
and under mountains, and they were crying out for the rocks to fall down on them and crush them, as opposed to facing God and His judgment. They didn't want to turn to Him. They didn't want to turn back to Him. They wanted to run and try to hide and hope that something would kill them so they could avoid facing God. They had wanted nothing to do with God. In the sounding of the trumpets, you remember people who were seeing unprecedented judgment of God wanted to die, and they were looking to die, and only God's mercy held back death from them so they might have a chance to turn back, and they refused. The sounding of the sixth trumpet, death is brought on a massive number of people and those who were left alive after that devastation, the Scripture describes as unwilling to repent and chose instead to worship idols. Everything that's happening in the unfolding of the judgment of God is delayed in the sense that anyone who is alive in these moments of judgment is given opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ and turn to Him for deliverance from judgment. And again and again we see that the people are not willing until this moment. Right before the seventh trumpet sounds, The moment before where there will be no more opportunity to turn to Christ. The moment before the delay comes to an end, God does something so incredible that those who have been hard-hearted towards Him in every other display in this moment, they do something so unexpected. They, instead of worshiping idols, they give glory to God. Remarkable and totally unexpected. We're told the second woe ends right there. And now we know the sounding of the seventh trumpet is imminent. There will be no more delay. There will be no more opportunities. When the delay comes to an end. If you were living in the day when Revelation was written and delivered to the seven churches, do you know you'd be living in a day where you were persecuted for your faith? You'd be in a a church, in a small community, where people would come to faith in Jesus Christ in hostile conditions. There would be some people in your church family who had died because they proclaimed Christ and they were murdered for it. There would be other people in your church family who had lost jobs and livelihood, who were suffering deeply because they simply believed in Jesus Christ and were following Him. It was a difficult time, and Jesus had sent this message to these seven churches so that they might be reminded that no matter how difficult it is to follow Jesus Christ, it is worth it. No matter how challenging it is, no matter it seems to cost you, you will not be disappointed if you cling to Jesus and you follow Him. If you keep letting Him come into your life again and again and show you ways that He wants to change you, that you let go of the sin you used to cling to, and instead you cling to Jesus Christ and you let Him work out of your life the sins for which you have been forgiven and work into your life the righteousness that He's lavished on you through your faith 
strengthen him. He wanted those who were suffering to hear. Their suffering was not without purpose. They needed to just keep trusting and holding on because his promise to return was real. And if they held on until he came back, they would not be disappointed because he has the final word. Be so encouraging for them. And I am convinced that as we read this passage and we cling to what is clear, that we today can feel the same encouragement right where we live. And so because of this message, I want and believe we can be encouraged. And I need encouragement. I suspect there are many of you here today that need encouragement. And I'm so grateful for this text. Because we will not be disappointed. There are three spotlights in this text. You're thinking about a stage, and this passage is on stage, and we're watching it unfold, and we're identifying the lenses through which we see clearest. There are three spotlights. One is the protection of God. John measures out the people who worship the Lord protection. The witnesses are protected. For three and a half years, no one can do anything to prevent them from claiming the truth. They are protected in life. They are unbreakable. And then when they die, they are raised again to life so that they conquer even in death. They are protected in life and death. The protection of God over his people is in the spotlight. The other spotlight is in the witnesses' proclamation. They have given their lives to proclaim the word of God. Like they, they don't care what happens to them. They have risen up and begun to proclaim in the midst of unbelievable animosity. They discover there is nothing that can stop them in their proclamation except what God allows. And so they have nothing to lose. They completely trust the Lord with everything they are and they leverage everything they are to proclaim the word of God no matter what. There's a huge spotlight on their proclamation. They are even willing to die to proclaim the truthfulness of Jesus. But the biggest spotlight of all, like the biggest, brightest beam, is shining right down on the most unexpected of results. That God can do something totally unexpected through the most difficult of circumstances. And he doesn't want us to miss it. Because of those three spotlights, I want to tell you this morning, there is nothing better, nor anything safer, than following Jesus Christ and proclaiming his word with everything you are. Nothing better, nothing safer. If you decide to follow Jesus Christ with everything that you are, you are unbreakable in life. 
There is no difficulty, no danger, no tragedy, no, no crazy unfolding of the world that will happen to you except what God determines should happen to you. You are safe in this life when you follow Jesus Christ. And when God allows anything to happen to you that feels less than safe, He only allows it so that other people might see Jesus Christ. Think about the witnesses. They were safe. They could not be touched. But in their death, God did something remarkable. When you follow Jesus Christ, there's nothing better, nothing safer. In life, you will be unbreakable. And when God allows challenges, difficulties, hardships, and even death to come into your life in Christ, you will never taste death. He will raise you to new life. And everything He allowed into your life that felt unsafe in the moment will be understood as His gracious display to a world that needed to see Christ in us in challenging moments. Nothing is better, nothing is safer than following Jesus Christ. So here's what that means for you and me. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid to totally follow Christ. You know, there are times it feels a little bit unsettling to say, I'm going to follow Christ with everything I am, even though I don't know what that means and I don't know what it seems like it'll be like. I really kind of feel like if I step out, I don't know what that means for me. But here's the thing. We don't have to be afraid to totally follow Jesus Christ and to trust him completely. We don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid to admit that I struggle with following Christ. Like, I don't have to be afraid to stand up here every Sunday and say to you, I'm just like you. And I'm trying to walk with Christ Monday through Saturday just like you. And I'm having to confess sin in my life just like you. I'm getting in a fight with my spouse maybe just like you. I'm not treating my kids the way I'd like to all the time. I'm making mistakes just like you. I'm struggling with things. I have a life in Christ, but I'm recovering my life in Christ by His grace and mercy. And I don't have to be afraid to tell you that. Because there's nothing better and nothing safer than following Jesus Christ. And when I follow Christ, it means my life is going to be changed. And there are sins in my life that are going to come to the surface. And God's going to want to get them out. And I need the body of Christ around me to encourage me to walk with Christ no matter what. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid to make decisions to follow Christ in such a way that it might jeopardize what people think about me or my future. 
I don't have to be afraid to follow Christ in a way that my employers might not approve it. I don't have to be afraid to follow Christ in a way that might jeopardize my future because my future is safe in Jesus Christ. And I have been called to live a life just like the two witnesses, to leverage everything I am for the proclamation of the gospel, knowing that someday the delay will end. And I am the messenger right now. You are the messenger right now where you live, proclaiming the message no matter what. We don't have to be afraid to proclaim Jesus Christ no matter what. We don't have to be afraid of rejection. We don't have to be afraid of what people think about us. We don't have to be afraid ever again. You know what we don't have to be afraid of? We don't have to be afraid of death. We never have to be afraid of death. Do you realize what happened with the witnesses? They died. I suspect that three and a half years of unleashing fire from your mouth and all sorts of plagues as much as you want gave them a pretty good sense of confidence. Can you imagine what it was like when the beast came out of the abyss and they realized we're no longer being protected? We're going to die. They died. That's not easy. They died. But look what God did. He used their death in a series of events to bring people who otherwise were, no, were not interested in God at all to a place where they were willing to glorify God. Here's why I don't have to be afraid of death. Because I know I'm going to rise again in Jesus Christ. And I know that even though my death may bring pain, God does not waste the death of his people. You've seen it. You've seen funerals of people who trusted Jesus Christ and they talked about the life that was lived. And what happened was you heard a proclamation of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And people that were hearing that, experiencing that, who went through the pain of losing that individual are called to follow Jesus Christ. And there are people who said, I will never follow Christ. And then a moment when they hear and see the death of someone they love and the testimony of their life, because of that death, they decide, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. You've seen it, right? And so we know that if we die following Christ, God will not waste our death. And that it might be one event in a series of events that bring people to Christ that otherwise would never have followed Him. That is the goodness of God. Doing the unexpected so that I never have to lose hope. I don't have to be afraid. And I can always have hope. Because our God is the God who does the unexpected. And He uses everything the great things and the tragic things to bring about unexpected miracles. And we've got to be a people that never fear and never lose hope. Ever. You got two options today. You can choose to live your life on the basis of what the world celebrates. 
Or you can choose to live your life on the basis that God will have the final word. That is a choice. To live on the basis of God having the final word is a choice we will never regret. So be encouraged. <laughs>